That's like my number one passion is really finding ways to bring this into bite-sized, manageable pieces that will make everyone's life better. It will improve the quality of life of teachers who are pouring out all that they have every minute, every day. And it will also help us creatively rethink some of these ideas for some of these students who need something a little bit different. Hello, and welcome to NCAGT's podcast, They'll Be Fine. I am one of your hosts, Katherine Caldwell, and today you are in for a treat because joining us today is... Alexia Rose. Hello, I am also an educator looking to help support gifted learners in any way that I can because time and time again, we hear they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum services. Our nation's education policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low-income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. While this is an important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. Here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We are here because the saying they'll be fine just isn't good enough. Stephanie Higgs is a passionate, energetic, and engaging educator whose colleagues describe as radiating contagious joy. She has devoted her entire professional life to education, teaching in two of Tennessee's three grand divisions. Stephanie earned her undergraduate and graduate degrees in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where she then taught for six years at a museum magnet school and helped students achieve up to three years growth in reading in a single year. After relocating to Middle Tennessee, Stephanie became a fourth grade teacher, which had been her dream since she was a fourth grader herself. In 2019, Stephanie became a gifted educator and differentiation coach where the staff quickly named her their teacher of the year before being named a region level semifinalist for Tennessee teacher of the year. Soon after, Stephanie was honored with the Tennessee Association for the Gifted Horizon Award, which is given to a gifted educator demonstrating promise and leadership in the field. Later, Stephanie was named the Tennessee Performing Arts Center teacher of the year. She recently graduated with an additional graduate degree from Tennessee State University in instructional leadership and now serves on the executive board as secretary for the Tennessee Association for the Gifted. Stephanie currently divides her time between daily gifted instruction and coaching teachers to enrich and extend learning to meet the needs of their diverse learners. Her fellow teachers know Stephanie thinks she has the best job in the building. Stephanie, we want to officially welcome you to NCAGT's podcast, They'll Be Fine. We're so glad to have you on here and just to have this conversation about something that I feel like so many people, I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today. 
And I feel like so many of these questions and topics as a teacher, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I would have heard this information and been able to talk to people about this years ago. Like this, this is the kind of stuff that people need to know about. And like when you mentioned how teachers didn't, how you didn't have any courses on this stuff when you were going through college, I feel like I remember that. I was talking to someone the other day about how I remember maybe a week of a class, maybe we talked about gifted education and that's it. So I think it's just beautiful that we have you on here today and that we're going to get to talk about something really important. Thank you. I'm so glad you're having me. I'm so glad to be here and as a Tennessee teacher right next door. So I love just hearing um, similarities and differences in the way that we identify and serve and support these students. So just so glad to be here and be part of your community. Thank you for having me. So what does a day in the life of Stephanie Higgs, the gifted educator and differentiation coach look like? There are no two days that are the same. I recently had a pre-service teacher observe me for 10 hours and the amount of time she was just in utter disbelief about the structure of my days, how quickly paced they are. Sometimes I joke of it looked like the Tasmanian devil just spinning in circles all over our building, which is honestly perfect for me. I feel like this role was just made for me, but I serve what's called a dual role. So I am the full-time gifted educator in my building, which is such a blessing. And I don't take that lightly. I know that not everyone is nearly fortunate enough to have a full-time gifted educator within their four walls each and every day. So the great thing about that is that I can customize the learning experience for my students and individualize that quite a bit more. There are neighboring counties, even within the state of Tennessee, where a gifted educator might have six buildings on a caseload. And that rotation looks really different as far as what the student's daily gifted instruction might look like. So I get to be full-time in my building, but what I also get to do, which again is just, I feel like unheard of in the field of gifted education, is I serve a dual role. So my second hat that I wear besides full-time gifted educator is that I'm what's called a differentiation coach. So that's a newer word I feel like in education compared to when I was growing up and I was in school. And so basically it's that idea of different for these students who need something different, especially since my additional teaching endorsement in gifted education focuses on those advanced academic studies. It's really performing differentiated instruction on the more advanced side of of supporting students in the general education classroom. We also have math coaches and literature coaches who, who provide a variety of different supports for students. But the differentiation coach, because of that extra endorsement that I hold, really helps me support those students who are ready to move at a much more quick pace. And so a day in the life looks like providing gifted services. So in Tennessee, those are special education services. We pull students out into the special education setting, which is my classroom, with intellectual peers who might be working on similar goals based on an IEP. So we are one of just eight states in the country that identifies gifted students and serves them through an IEP or an individualized education plan. And so every student that I serve, once they're identified, our school team sits down. That includes administrators, teachers, parents, myself, and we write a really customized plan for that student. And then I am serving them on a daily and weekly basis in the gifted education setting. Because we are so fortunate 
fortunate to be able to house me in one building full time. That also allows a lot of time for me to get inside their classroom. So I love getting to go in their classroom, see how they're performing, how engaged they are, what they might need, how we could customize that instruction just a little bit more. Because I also wear that coaching hat. Sometimes that looks like I'm going into a classroom modeling a lesson saying, hey, I would love for you to try number talks. And that's really going to develop this deep, profound number sense. Could I come into your classroom and model that for you, show you how that's done a couple of times. Then we can phase back to co-teaching where you take over, but I'm right there to support and then phase that into that's something that the general education teacher is going to take on. So there's lots of opportunities for modeling and co-teaching where I'm showing them new strategies or supporting them is they pilot and try new ideas that really support so many students, but especially make sure that those advanced or gifted learners have just what they need in the classroom. So no two days look the same, a variety of gifted supports for students as young as pre-K. I've had pre-K students all the way through fifth grade students going into their classrooms for what we call inclusion time, where I'm going in and supporting in the classroom with kind of some light ability peers that might need something different. Sometimes that's me working with the teacher, modeling, co-teaching a lesson. I am identifying students. So I do all sorts of different types of activities to make sure that that I have hands on the students who might need something different, being what we call like a talent spotter. And then I'm also writing these IEPs, holding these IEP meetings for every student that I serve, administering creativity assessments as part of the eligibility process, collecting data on my students, reporting that data, communicating with the parents of students I serve, just a real variety of things. I'm also really involved in our leadership team. So I step outside just that gifted box. So like right now, I am in charge of a school-wide committee. We wanted our students to be reading more. And that was something that a lot of the teachers were craving. How could we incentivize that? So I took that on as part of our leadership team. And so I, our students were challenged last year to read for a million minutes collectively as a school. And we reached that goal. So year two, wow. we bumped it up to 1,750,000 minutes. And we're less than 100,000 minutes away from that goal, which we're hoping to reach by the end of the year. And um, so I take on, you know, roles like that really just allow me to just feel so at home with all students in every class. Um, my goal is to know as many names as possible, form these individual relationships. So it's just, it's a really special role. It is no secret. I think I have the best job in the building. Building. So I love what I do very much. And I'm constantly restructuring that to meet the needs of our specific population at any given time. I think it's so nice to have every day looking so different. I know that makes it like just makes you love your job even more when you're always going to have different things. I also think it's so um, to your teachers to have a differentiation coach. Like I was just thinking about for me, when I hear differentiation, honestly, it sometimes makes me feel like that's hard. It's so hard. And I just think of so many teachers who just get very defeated when they hear differentiation because they obviously know that we have students on so many different levels, but that is also overwhelming sometimes to think of reaching those kids on those different levels. And I think some kids, it's probably your gifted kids who get forgotten when it comes to that because they're trying to reach those friends who aren't quite on grade level or things like that. So I think that's so beautiful that you can do that for your school. And, and I wish more schools had that position. Oh, it's just the best. And I think the idea is there's kind of this myth of average. And so that's this idea. Um, I, I attended professional development one time and they were talking about that. They tried to design the average pilot's seat. And so what they were trying to do was figure out the length of the pilot's arms. What would be the average length? What was the length of their legs? How far back did they need to position the seat? You know, and all these different pieces. And what they found through that was 
there is no average. It didn't suit anyone's needs. And so I think that's such an interesting challenge in education because we are given these grade level standards. We are tasked with going straight down the middle. But if we were to think more about this myth of average, how many of our students is that going to meet? Because is there such thing as an, you teach third grade, is there such thing as an average third grader? Yeah, I mean, no you know, what we, that looks we look like. at the, right. We look at the data, you know, and we try to, we try to find that, that middle road. But what's so interesting is again, even as a quote unquote average third grader, maybe they're average in one subject area, but another is a real strength. Mm-hmm. And then another yes. is an area where they need a little additional support. And so that's why this role I think is so essential as well, because so many students need something different in some area, whether that's in a core academic subject, whether that's in social emotional support, whether that's in, this is a strength, but this is actually an area where I need a little bit of additional support. Um, so, you know, kind of debunking that myth of, of average, but also I love, you know, differentiation is not a bad word. And I think sometimes I was a classroom teacher for almost 10 years before I moved into gifted education full-time. And that was one of those pie in the sky ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Theoretically, <laughs> that sounds the really great. I hear what you're saying, but as a classroom teacher, my job is literally set up to be so challenging if I, if that is true and if there is no average. And so every one of my 20, 25 students, however many um, need something very different, where and how do I do that? And so that is what I love about, about this role is I have been able to come in and really provide systematic ways of supporting these students that do not require a ton of extra work on the teacher's part, but where at the end of the day, I think they can take that deep breath and say, I am meeting the needs of my students. I am not just, I love the name of this podcast, but they'll be fine. I think that is another, you want to talk about myth busting, but like the gifted kids, nah, they'll be fine. No, Mm -hmm. I think all of our teachers know those kids need more. And I think all of our teachers want to give them more, but it's this ideology, this pie in the sky. How do I do that? Practically, what does that look like? And so that's where I've really been able, the longer I've sat in this role with so much experience as a classroom teacher, here's how, here's some predictable ways we can do that. Here's some consistent ways that we can do that. We can bring in some of these best practices, but it's not going to overburden this teacher's plate. One of my favorite co-teachers says they keep adding to our plate and no one even has the decency to give us a bigger plate. And so how true is that? And especially with the idea of differentiation, my plate is overflowing. Where does that fit and how? So um, definitely would love to help debunk that myth a little bit today. And then also I am partnering with Teach Your Heart Out this summer and Teacher Goals. And I'm actually doing some digital, um, some professional development. So I would love to share that information a little bit later as well, um, just because that's a way to do that online this summer. And I'm going to really dig into all the nuts and bolts of how that could look. And it's actually super affordable. It's $70 and that includes two free books. So it's just like a great opportunity, kind of a choose your own adventure. There's all these different sessions, but I'm going to be doing some virtual PD this summer to really dig more into, okay, how can we take this away from being a word that, oh, that we all want to shy away from because we just conceptually don't know what that actually looks like in daily practical application. Stephanie, I love that you mentioned that you go in and help teachers, like you teach in front of teachers how to actually do this. You don't talk the talk, but you walk the walk. So I just really appreciate that. I know like my first two years of teaching, I was like, okay, you're telling me to do these things, but like, I don't understand how to do these things. Please show me, teach me like I'm the student because that's what I am in this situation. So I just love, love that you were doing that for those teachers. I'm just like, oh, magic, beautiful, perfect. Thank you. And that's why every teacher needs, or I'm sorry, every building needs this role because I'm that extra person. So not only that, but I wonder if you were like, okay, first teach me, but also 
what are the rest of my kids doing while I'm training them on this new way of doing things? And so that's what's so great about my role as well is I will meet with the teacher and we'll flesh out what we want it to look like. And then I'll say, let me block out 20 minutes twice a week for the next two weeks and let me come in and work with that small group and help introduce it and get it started. And then you can pick up from that point. And so I think that's another piece is it is so great that I'm able to offer those types of opportunities to my staff because we have this role in the building. So I just think that would be such an amazing role if we could have that all over the country. I think the way that would support not only our gifted students, but our high achieving students would just pay off tenfold. It's such an important role. You are one of these people that just like screams, like, I want to be a teacher, like something that you have always wanted to do. You've always wanted to be a teacher. So what really brought you into this world of education? When did you know? I've known since the fourth grade that I wanted to be a fourth grade teacher and I'm such a student of people. So I think even when I was an elementary school student, I watched my teachers like a hawk. I was the one who like went home and played school well after everyone else had moved away from going home and playing like that. I was still setting my room up and grading their papers and didn't love recess like every other kid. I wanted to go hang out with the teachers and be like, what's the gossip? What's everybody? What are you guys listening at the door? Is something good happened? Tell me. I wanted to dress just like them. I'll never forget trying to find this little skirt that my first grade teacher had. And I just needed that. I mean, it is just, it is. I do think I scream that it's just in who I am and it always has been. And so I, I taught pre-K, I taught second grade and I taught fourth grade as a general educator before I moved into gifted education. And so getting to end that general education time in the grade level that that's when I knew I wanted to teach was when I was a fourth grader. So that was really cool to bring that full circle. And just, it's interesting when you're among your peers as a fourth grader to know that 20 years down the road, you want to be teaching them. So that was just a sweet full circle moment for me, but it is, it's just, it's in my blood. It's who I am. I have now been in school since I was five years old. I've never left. It's just, you know, I always joke my calendar doesn't run January to December like everyone else's. Mine runs August to August. Like my whole life is in school calendars. So. Taxes are impossible. I'm like, <laughs> no, it should be, it, it should not be January to January. No. That doesn't make sense. Oh, so. <laughs> Yeah, it's in my lifeblood. And then my brother is intellectually gifted. And so I think he was, he was advanced academically to the point where he ended up grade skipping twice. So he skipped second grade and then he skipped eighth grade. And so just getting to see the implications of that kind of behind the scenes, my entire life of what it looks like, not in the school setting to be gifted, but what it looks like, you know, kind of on a personal level. And now that he's a gifted adult, what that looks like and what strengths that provides and also where he has additional challenges as a result. And um, the more I deep dive into this role, the better I understand him. So I'll still find myself even just a week or two ago, I was sending him, um, something I had seen online about the way that giftedness can portray itself in doing like a really deep dive into a topic and you just become you become interested and then you just have to know everything that possibly exists and it's so funny because I was telling him like that's just Adam to me I don't think about that being part of the Mm -hmm. way that his brain is wired he's just my brother and that's just something that he does but no seeing the intricacies between yes that is my brother but part of the reason that he does these amazing deep dives into history and all these other topics of interest is because of that neurodiversity and the way that his brain is wired differently than mine is. And so it's just that is a whole different level of kind of the heart behind giftedness and why that specifically is so important to me. I think that's beautiful. Um, you got to see the behind the scenes, like you just said, of giftedness, because I feel like it's like you could just observe and learn so many things on a personal level and carry that into your work. I just think that's so 
helpful. And also seeing how he like transitioned into an adult. Like it's interesting. We've talked to some people and they're like, yeah, I was gifted as a kid, but I wouldn't consider myself a gifted. Like they don't think about it anymore as an adult. And I just think that's, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. Like see people differently. It does. So I actually graduated from a magnet high school and during that time, like I was not in any of the gifted programs. Like, so I just had no really idea, but I was just like, saw that in your bio. And I was like, I'm so curious about how giftedness came into effect in both the magnet school versus the traditional school. What did that look like? So I did, not only do I serve in kind of a once in a career role now, I started my career at a once in a career school. So I started my teaching career in Chattanooga, Tennessee at what's called a museum magnet school. And so that is a really specialized type of magnet school. And what that meant was that we partnered with all the local museums in Chattanooga. And the great thing about geographically where our school was located was that all of these museums were within usually a 10 minute drive of our campus. And so literally we would be walking out the doors at 9 a.m. We would be walking back in the doors at 10 a.m. saying tag you're it to the next grade level teachers. So this was something that was included almost weekly in our building was that we partnered with these museums. And so we took our class, we didn't call them field trips, we called them learning expeditions. Because typically when you think of a field trip, we're going to go spend half a day at the zoo and choose your own adventure. You're in a small group, just rotate around, see what you see. Um, And so a learning expedition was very different. These were very targeted. And so again, that's why we would leave at nine back in the building at 10. We would drive there, we would have a 30 minute learning experience that had been carefully and thoughtfully planned ahead of time, hop back on that bus and right back at school. And the way that we planned those was through overarching nine-week units. They were thematic and we called them modules. That's how we taught all the science and social studies content at this school. And so in second grade, um, it changed year to year, of course, as our standards were changing and adjusting. But sometimes that looked like spending an entire nine weeks diving into the culture of Japan. Sometimes that looked like an immersive nine-week unit on oceans or government, Native Americans. And so we everything that we taught in science and social studies was under these kind of thematic units. And so something that specifically great there for gifted learners is that our gifted learners really learn better from whole to part. So a lot of our typically developing general education students, they learn best from part all the way up to whole. So each day you teach them that bite-sized lesson, at the end of the unit they say, okay, now I get it. Now I understand how all of those pieces fit together. Well, a lot of times our gifted education students, they think in an opposite way. They need to see at the beginning this overarching theme and then understand how all of those pieces fit underneath that big overarching concept or that big idea. And so that was especially helpful for those gifted learners. Not only that, but at the end of each quarter, our school turned into a school-wide museum featuring all of their work. So that was how they demonstrated mastery in science and social studies. We were actually a textbook-free school, so we had no textbooks in the building, and students created their own textbooks in science and social studies. And so there was so much arts integration, performing arts, visual arts were a huge part of daily instruction. The students were not just summers of these types of arts, they were producers. That was really a way that we were checking for mastery and that they were demonstrating that they were junior docents in the museum. So each nine weeks, a few students got to be a docent as part of our school-wide museum. And so they would be trained ahead of time and on what we called exhibit night when we would unveil this to the whole community and all these visitors would come in. These specific students would stay at a specific part of our museum exhibit and talk all about, we had, we made 
um, our entire ocean exhibit was made out of recyclable materials. And so one of those was jellyfish and they were made out of grocery bags because sea turtles actually eat and ingest a lot of grocery bags in the ocean because they think that they are jellyfish. And so we, we had all these great science and conservation lessons, things like that. So our students had so much ownership and so much just opportunity for creativity, for displaying their understanding and demonstrating their knowledge in a variety of ways. And so, I mean, that was just truly a once in a lifetime start to my career. And that developed my teaching tool belt. So then when I moved to just a more traditional public school in a more traditional county, I'm able to bring so many of those key concepts with me. And so like creativity and arts integration are hugely important to me. And so I was recognized for that work recently through our Tennessee Performing Arts Center in Nashville. And so I was I was named their teacher of the year for that work that I do with arts integration because that's so important to me. Um, and so again, that was just a once in a lifetime kind of start to a career. I learned so much and it's been great to be able to bring that really unique niche perspective to a more traditional public school setting and see how we can find ways to to mirror and marry both. So yeah, that was just an unbelievable start to my career. I just think that's amazing the opportunity that they got to go to these museums. We were, we're, we've been talking about on our grade level about planning like the different like field trips we'd like to go to. And we're like, we just aren't near any of the things we want to go to. So it would take so much time to get there and blah, blah, blah. So I just love that they got, I mean, weekly or like they were only missing an hour of their day. It wasn't taking up the whole day. And, And I love how targeted and intentional the trips were I, that is such a cool experience for you and the kids. Oh, it was unbelievable. And then part of that partnership was that the students got a pass for the year so that they could go back with their families because sometimes an aquarium visit, good gracious, that can be a really expensive trip by the time you take the whole family. And so the students had a pass. So for that entire year, every year that they were at our school, they could visit any of those museums. So that was so exciting too. We would hook them, uh, you know, spending 30 minutes doing this deep dive. They would go back and of course be so excited to share that with their family. But then they had those opportunities to really take it all in together and kind of, you know, infuse all of the lessons. Like we, when we studied oceans, we truly were at the aquarium almost every Tuesday. And so then they could go back and say, look, you know what, go over here. Let me show you this. Let me talk about what we did. And then let's go over here. So it was just a really special experience for everybody. I just took my students to DC and we were going to all of the museums and there was just so much. And so I love that you like the, like, just what did you call it a learning exhibition love it because it just like really focuses on a certain thing and I'm like I am stealing that for next trip I love it yes those are a huge part of it so we used understanding by design was the um, kind of the model that we used for lesson planning and so it's really just the idea of backwards lesson planning and kind of planning from the with the end in mind from the very beginning so what are our ultimate goals which was great because that was how we built out this museum exhibit within our walls and then let's plan that back. So what does day one look like if this is where we want to get students at the end based on our standards, based on what we want to display in the school-wide museum? I also think it's interesting that you mentioned how gifted kids think where they need to see the whole first before they see the parts. I instantly thought of a couple of my kids that I have this year who I definitely can see that because they ask so many questions and questions that I think other kids wouldn't even think of yet because they're trying to like paint a picture probably in their brain of what I'm talking about. That, that was a beautiful way to explain that because I can see that with some of my kids. And that's so helpful to know as teachers, 
when you're thinking like, why are they asking this question right now? They don't need to know that right now. They do. They do need to know that right now so that they can understand what you're talking about. I think that's really, it's a good thing for teachers to know. Two quick ideas there. First would be to think about when you think, Catherine, about your third grade, what would be a universal theme is what we're talking about here. But what would be a universal theme that would encapsulate every unit that you teach in every study? And so that's really the idea of a universal theme. It is truly universal. So for us, what we do in pre-K through eighth grade, we assign a universal theme to each grade level. And so that way, students really are getting to make meaning. So that way, when they have those questions with you, what they can be sitting there trying to think is, how does that fit into this overarching concept? Mm -hmm. So like for us in third grade, it's structures. That period really well with the studies that we're completing in ELA, that you can really think about the structures mm -hmm. in math. Of course, science and social studies lend themselves well to that. The animal kingdom, the structure of the animal kingdom, we do oceans and we do space in third grade where I'm teaching now. And so there's so much you can do with structure there, but that's a great way to, you know, to kind of assign that universal concept or that universal theme. And then the whole year students are kind of puzzle piecing how do all of these things fit into this universal theme. A second idea that I do there with that, they always have questions and they always have more questions is I carve out a small pocket of time each week and I call it, what are you wondering Wednesday? So I read a book years ago called the curious classroom and I tweaked it and made it my own with this. What are you wondering Wednesday? But what I let those students do that need that if it's not I know sometimes they're ready to do that deep dive like I was talking about with my brother and you're like love that got to teach all of this and we have five minutes to lunch so that's gonna yes. have to wait so what you could do is think about like a curiosity journal and so I have some students that prefer to do that virtually, like on their Chromebook, and they just keep a running doc. I have other students that use like just a little pencil paper journal because it's so much quicker than just whip that out. But they put as many burning questions as they have there. And then I dedicate a few minutes of time each week, wherever that fits into your week as a whole. And that's when I love alliteration. So it's what are you wondering Wednesday, but we could fact finding Friday. I mean, we could put it anywhere, yes. but there's three parts to that process and students are always at different spots. So some students are just generating questions like during that few minutes that I carve out, they're just making a list of what are you wondering? So we call those like our I wonders. And then if they're, they don't have a burning question, but they've got this big, long list of them. Great. You get to actually embark on the process of researching answers to your burning questions or three, they're working on presenting that information. So if they want to put that in Google slides, whatever they want to do today here, I looked into this and this was where that wound up. So that's a way to, to help acknowledge and provide the value to the way that their brain is wired, the way that they have these questions, the way that they want to deep dive into a topic that you introduce. It's protecting time for that, but that's also helping you juggle. You know, we've got five minutes till luncheon and that's such a good question, yes. but we could go off on a 20 minute tangent. Yes. So that's one little strategy I use. I love that balance between honoring the curiosity and not wanting to diminish it, but still, yes. we still have other things we have to do in our day. There's so many of you, we have to get it all done. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so true. So throughout your experiences, you have helped to implement many different unique traditions in the classroom, grade level and school-wide, such as bobblehead, biography, coffee house, sunshine, phone calls, Greek mythology, readers, theater, plays, and sharing strengths sessions. Which of those would you say is like your favorite one? Sunshine phone calls are, I think, the best thing I've ever invented. <laughs> oh my gosh, please explain that. So these are so super quick. Typically, when I would hang up the phone, it would say like a minute, 33 seconds. So I'm talking such little time, the most profound investment that I made with my students. And so I was always on the hunt for a student who was just doing something special. It could be something really small. It could be a student who's just consistently just right there, just right on track with you, always making great choices, maybe not 
not acknowledged and celebrated enough for being such a trustworthy student. Maybe great leadership, maybe just really kind and thoughtful. You know, somebody spilled their whole box of crayons and you're the first one to jump down there and help them pick those up. Maybe it was a student who stood out because that is a little more atypical of, hey, we've been working on perspective taking or acknowledging others' viewpoints and really noticed you do that. So typically what I tried to do was all week long, I would just keep my eyes peeled for that. And then on Fridays, my class wrote a script at the beginning of the year and we wrote it together. It was very short and sweet. And we would call the parents on speakerphone as a class and, and it was like scripted. So I, I would always start it and I would say, hello, this is Miss Higgs. And I would say, my class is here actually with me on speakerphone and they have a special message. Are you ready for it? And the parent would say, yes. I point at the class and they would say, this is a sunshine phone call from Miss Higgs class. And they honestly didn't know until this next moment who it was going to be for. And so sometimes they could recognize their parents' voice, but a lot of times they couldn't on the phone. And so then I would say, Catherine was a point at my class. And they would say, what? And then I would say, let me tell you why I've called to brag about Catherine. She is consistently making great choices. Mom and dad, I just, I could call you every single day. This is a student who's just, I go on. And just for 30 or so seconds, just not long at all, but just bragging about this student. And then I'd say, okay, we have one more message for you. Are you ready? And I'd point at the class and they would say, we always did them on Friday. So they'd say, we hope you have a wonderful weekend or we hope this brightens your day, whatever they came up with. And that's why we called them sunshine phone calls. And so just doing one of those weekly, that is still the aspect of my classroom that I hear about more than anything else that I've ever done. I think making those positive phone calls home, like we've talked about already, teachers are just spread so thin and their plates are overflowing and finding we all value the importance of that. We all value the those connections, but where does that fit? Even if you have the best of intentions today during planning, I'm going to make one positive phone call. Then of course, inevitably nine things come up and that didn't happen. And so carving out time in the school day to do that and letting the kids have ownership and letting the kids be part of that. I would have kids come up and nominate somebody. Hey, Mrs. Siggs, I'm not sure if you saw it or this happened at lunch. And I wanted to be sure that you knew about that and things like that. And so it was just truly so profound. I think that finding time to celebrate students in that way was so special. Sometimes something surprising happened. Oh, I just found out in the middle of the day that you won the writing contest that all of my students entered. So that would be a, let's stop everything right now. This just warrants one immediately. And so again, such a tiny little piece of an entire week, but just, it paid off tenfold for the students, for their families and parents cried. Like it was just a really, listen, I just had a tear in my eye. I was like, (laughs) this is so precious. And I was like, this is just has so many good aspects. There's so many things you can get from that. Like one that's helping your classroom culture. Like Mm -hmm. I just feel like that brings us all together because we just witnessed your parents hearing this amazing thing about you. Like that to me is so powerful. And you're doing it as a class. Like, yes, you're not having to go into use planning time or like, I feel like phone calls are just something like I don't do in front of my kids. Like it's usually right. like a private right. thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I just love that. Like the kids get to be a part of it. And that one kid who's getting to sit there and listen to it and know that their parents are hearing this. Oh my gosh. I bet they're just, their day week is made. Yeah. Like it, that is just so powerful. Yeah. It's really special. And I just think, yeah, there's just not enough time. So I think the longer that we've all been into teaching, the more we see there is less and less time for these extra pieces that we know matter, but we are just really plugging away at that content. And so we can always find, and like I said, a truly start to finish this phone call took less than two minutes and the impact that it made was more priceless than anything else that I did. We can certainly find those two minutes once a week. A couple of pro tips, if that's something anyone was interested in doing, I did secretly email the parents the day before and just said, Mm. expect this phone call 
call at this time, because of course yes. the first thing when parents see the school is calling, they're like, oh gosh, who's in the nurse's office or who's sick? Or yes. So I said that. And, and kids are listening to you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And tell them you're going to be on speakerphone. So it's not the time you're like, oh, hey, I've been meaning to call you and go into that. And so all I would say was you're getting a surprise phone call tomorrow. Please don't mention it. It'll be during this window of time. Also, if you can't answer, no worries. We can leave a sunshine voicemail, which actually kids loved because then they could go home and listen to it themselves. And I got such a kick out of that. But that was just another, just to make sure parents were available if they could be, they usually really tried to. And then also sometimes it's really a great idea to start off if you have that student that comes to you and they perhaps have a bit of a reputation for some challenges that may present themselves. Finding a way to start out with a positive can be life-changing for the kid, the year that they have in the relationship with those parents. If these are parents who have frequently said, oh gosh, when I get a call from the school, it's something negative, something's happened. And that's just a really challenging relationship. If you can let that be your first sunshine phone call is I am going to find something positive to celebrate this week. That can change the trajectory truly of the whole year for you, for the student and for their family and your relationship with them. And not even to mention, this also teaches that whole class how to leave a proper phone call in a voice. Yeah. That's like a real skill. Yes. Life skill. You know, yeah. But it's not in curriculum. So it's all tying back. I think yes. so many times I've talked to my colleagues. So I think that they should learn how to write a message. But is that writing? In a, like writing an email? And then I'm like, yes, duh. Like, hello. Yeah. So even these beautiful things, it's all important. All important. Yeah. 21st century skills. Yes. Um, want to give you an opportunity to share any more tips you may have for educators that are listening. Um, I'd love to share just a little kind of sneak peek of what I'm going to be doing some professional development about this year. But one of those is a differentiated schedule that can be put in place with any subject area. I actually work with teachers, not even just in my building. I just love it. So I'm like, hey, call me. We'll set up a Zoom. We'll do this. But setting up a differentiated visual schedule. So that's what we were talking about, Catherine, really early on was love the idea where and how and when and why. Mm -hmm. And I, I just don't have all those pieces. So what I've done, especially the longer I've been in this role, is I've really started to see as a system, universal theme systems, or process of how can we make this really predictable for our students, because it has to be that really balanced to find. It needs to be what we consider instructional. So there's three levels. If it's frustrational, that's too hard. If it's independent, that's too easy. So finding kind of an instructional level of challenge that students can practice independently enough because it doesn't need to be so easy that it's independent, right? If, it, if we've done that, we're not quite meeting that mark of making it challenging enough. But if it's frustrational, it's too hard for them to do without some teacher support, guidance, and help. And you're typically going to be instructing some other students in your class who are closer to grade level. So what I've kind of come up with in my building, based on just the resources that we have available, is a systematic, visual, predictable schedule. And so it starts with something called the most difficult five. So that's an informal way of pre-testing. Again, one of those words that as a classroom teacher, I was like, ah, I don't like it. I don't like it. I know pre-testing is like the best practice, but how and what do I do? And what are all the other students doing? And then what do I do with the data that I get? And how do I use that mm -hmm. to drive future decisions? And so this is my favorite way. It's called most difficult five. It's the most informal way of pre-testing and it's just done daily. And so what I typically do is I have students stick with me. Let's just use math as an example. I'll have students stick with me or the classroom teacher for the first 
two problems. Make sure that they're still part of that classroom community and that they understand today's concept. There are going to be a few things, even my most gifted fourth graders, long division is such a process. They typically don't know how to do that until it's like isolated, explicit instruction. So that's maybe not a day that they would need this. However, when they're doing a place value to just one more place, they knew how to do that years ago. This is the structure. I have them stay with the class for the first two problems, get a pulse check. Oh yeah, we're rounding. I know how to round that. You know, I got it. Or, ooh, this is long division. I've never seen this in my life. I'm going to stick with the class today. So stick with the class for two problems. If it is a skill where they are able to self-monitor and say, I got this, they can move on to this informal pre-testing. And what that is, is the most difficult five. So the teacher ahead of time, again, such tiny work on the teacher. They just circle the five most difficult problems, whether they stick that on a post-it, they circle them in the kid's book, they post them on the back wall. They pick out the most difficult problems for the day. The student goes ahead and moves to those if they are comfortable with the daily lesson. If they can do the most difficult five problems, look how much time we've just bought them back. They don't need to sit there for multiple examples with the class. They don't need to sit there and go really slowly of, okay, I'm going to give everybody a couple minutes to solve this. No, they've done the most difficult five. They've demonstrated they do have mastery. We're going to move on. So once they've done, that's usually the first piece in the visual schedule. And then for us, this is where I encourage to teachers to really partner with the reps for the companies that their district uses. So whether you go through the math coach, whether you yourself make a phone call, but finding out what resources are available. And the reason I say that is because I happened to be in a classroom one time where this teacher knew to make two extra clicks on her click path on like a digital tool. And if you happen to know to make those two extra clicks and check the certain box, then when your students finish the daily practice, if they got a certain percent correct, an enrichment option would pop up. I would have never known. That's not something that would have just mm -hmm. necessarily been presented. So I really do encourage teachers to work closely if they have a math coach or just calling the rep and saying, hey, I have some questions about the enrichment opportunities provided by your, your company. And so for us, that's what that second piece looks like is some sort of technology aspect. Another reason I love that there is because it is going to give instant feedback if students are missing something or doing it incorrectly. We wouldn't want to send them off to work more independently and they're practicing it incorrectly over and over and what's becoming repeated in their brain. So I love that they try the most difficult five, then they move on to some sort of online component. Like for us, it's the component that goes with our textbook. And then it has this enrichment option if they get a certain percentage correct. And then it depends. So at this point, every grade level I teach, we do this differently. Some grade levels want like three columns. So it's the most difficult five. It's a computer program. And then the last column is some of my fun extras. So I have a million different types of number puzzles. Many of those don't even involve reading or words because a lot of times, especially in those really little grades, we might have a kindergartner whose number sense is phenomenal, but if it's like reading math problems, that's where they're going to be stumped, but it's not because they don't have the mathematical ability. So I have tons of great number puzzles that don't have any words, different types of like critical thinking, creative thinking, math work. And sometimes it's an independent project, like in second grade, students are designing their own pet store. And so they're getting to pick how many pets and they have this much money and this is a profit and like all these great things. So anyway, but a schedule like that's really systematic and consistent. So when you think on that one specifically for the part of the teacher, it's just identifying which five problems are the hardest. That doesn't take very long. Assigning them something on the computer, again, depending on what resources your district has available, that doesn't take very long. Seeing if there's an enrichment option there. Um, we also have grade levels. We have like an enrichment booklet that's separate that teachers just forget is a great resource. Sometimes it's like we have so many resources. How do we distinguish mm -hmm. which and what's most appropriate? So some grade levels put that in there where it's like an enrichment page. So maybe either they do that instead of, that's a huge idea in gifted education is not in addition to, it's instead of. So it's 
It's not, oh, you lucky duck. You're so great at math. You're going to do the entire page that everyone else is going to do. And then you get three extra projects. It's really that idea of instead of. So like just doing those difficult five is buying back time for these gifted kids. So anyway, so a schedule like that is just really predictable. It's really consistent. So kids can get in this workshop model of, okay, first I do this and then I do this and then I do this. Usually that last column is where I make a change every day to keep it exciting. So like I'll come in and train them at the beginning of the year, maybe on just one or two puzzles. And then once they're experts on those, we'll add in a third option and then a fourth option. And pretty soon we've got something different five days a week so that they don't get bored or discouraged by that. Yeah. So something like that, I think could be a really great fit for so many kids in so many different subject areas. It's just being able to know what resources your district has available and then plugging them in. But I think so often as a classroom teacher, I had the stuff. I just didn't know what to do with it or where to put it. And so I think a schedule like that can carve out like a priority of, okay, I love these cool puzzles. I never can remember to use them. I'm going to put that on Tuesdays. And every Tuesday, that's going to be the third box in their column and their differentiated math schedule is to go and work on these really fun puzzles. Yeah, I think that's another fun one. It can be used any grade level, any subject, and it's had great success at the school where I am. And our students just love it. It really buys back a lot of time for these students who come in knowing so much of the content that's going to be covered on a given day. I think that's such a great idea. And I guess for me, something that I struggle with differentiation sometimes is, okay, so going back to the beginning, you said, so like you do two problems together. So I'm envisioning like my classroom. So like we're all on the carpet doing the two, two problems together. And then you said, you see, okay, these kids, they're good. Do the most difficult five. So the rest of your kids would stay and you would like continue your lesson. Okay. So for me, and I think I am just like overtly, like just conscious of how everyone's feeling in the room. Like I'm always worried about like my kids being like feeling, oh, we need more. They don't like, you know what I mean? Feeling almost like I I don't want this to be, I don't want this to cause anything in the room where people feel like uncomfortable because we need more instruction where they get to go off and do their own. You know what I mean? Like, how do you like navigate that? So I have a great lesson for that. And it's a Band-Aid lesson. And so (laughs) early on in the year, every student walks in the door and as they're walking in the door, I give them an ailment. You've got a headache. You scratched your knee on the playground, twisted your ankle, give everybody an ailment. And they think that's so funny. So then they come together. We're sitting around the carpet or whatever. And I say, okay, so remember your ailment. Everybody's got their ailment and Miss Higgs is going to fix your ailment. You ready? And I give everybody a Band-Aid. And they're like, that didn't help my headache at all. Like my head, I still got this terrible headache. Oh, I twisted my ankle. The band, that's not going to fix that. And so that's a great just visual for students to say, okay, that's correct. This one size method is not going to fix everything. As a teacher, it is my job to give every single student what they need. If you have a headache, you know what might make that feel better is like an ice pack. That might really help ease that headache. If you've got the scraped knee, it is going to be the band-aid. If you've got a twisted ankle, let's put that up in the air on a pillow and maybe we need a brace and like different things. And so as the teacher, it's my job to give every student what they need. If I just gave everybody the band-aid, if I just said, everybody here is your third grade math textbook and we are all going to do this lesson, sit still, let's go. We're starting at number one. It wouldn't matter if it was too hard, if it was too easy, or if it was a just right Goldilocks situation, it wouldn't be meeting everyone's need. Just like the band-aid is not going to be meeting everyone's ailment. 
And so a lesson like that really just is a great visual for students to hold on to. And then I refer back to that and I say, now remember, Miss Higgs is looking at the data constantly. These groups are what we call flexible, meaning it's not set in stone. Just because in geometry, that's something that really comes easily to you. Your brain works really well in shapes. Guess what? For Miss Higgs, geometry is one of the harder ones. My brain does not work in that visual spatial way to the same degree. And so that's really challenging for me. So we all have to accept that we all have areas of great strength. We all have areas where we can continue to grow. One of my favorite names in gifted education is Dr. Sandra Kaplan. And I hate that I just learned about this year. I feel so behind the curve on this, but maybe I'll be able to share it with someone else who has not yet heard of this. But she has these habits of a scholar. And one of those is the idea of academic humility. And so even the students who are getting to do a little bit different work, we don't want that to ever be, oh, excuse me, you, you all mm-hmm. are going to stay behind. I'm going to do something more advanced. It's really this idea of we all have great strengths and we all have areas for growth. I, as a teacher, am constantly learning new things. How many things have I sat here and told you? I didn't know this three years ago. I learned it now. Or I didn't know this when I was pre-service teacher, but I once I was in a classroom of my own or once I moved into gifted education. So that is a hugely essential part is academic humility. We all need something different. We all acknowledge where that is. And as the teacher, you can trust that I'm always looking at the data. That's a great kind of way to push students too on the value of that. I think sometimes we don't always take that as seriously or we take these tests on a computer and we don't really know what they mean. And I say that's driving my instruction. When I see that you're really jumping ahead there, that tells me I need to buy back some time for you. If that was more of a challenging assessment, that tells me you need a little extra Miss Higgs time. So just like the Band-Aid isn't going to fix every ailment, giving every single third grader the same questions from the same textbook is not going to meet their individual needs. And as your teacher, it is my job to not just give everyone a Band-Aid when you're hurting. It's my job to give you what you need. It sounds like teachers need to make sure they have built that into their classroom culture before implementing some type of schedule, mass schedule like this. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of one of our interviews we did the other day. One of the guests kept saying how gifted kids have just a different need. And I feel like that helps shift theirs and really the world's view of what giftedness is because they think it's kids who don't need, they don't, they'll they'll be fine. Like they don't need what all these other kids need. And it's like, no, they just need something different. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that shift has to happen too in our brains before we can convince our kids that everyone needs something different. Absolutely. Just like there's a lot of those shifts that have to happen. Um, I think when we take it to the level of an adult versus a student, there's a lot of research that would suggest that 50 to 75% of the curriculum can be compacted for our gifted kiddos. How many adults do you know that would have, oh, this could have been an email kind of meetings. How angry would the adults be if they go into a meeting and they walk in the door knowing 50 to 75% of the content that's going to be covered in that meeting? They're going to be frustrated. They're going to feel like this was a waste of our time. This could have been an email. I only needed 25% mm-hmm. of this information. And so when we can really think about it from that perspective too, at our level, I would be grouchy if I'm walking into a meeting where I know 75% of what they're going to cover. I do that, right? As teachers, we all go to those professional development year after year, state testing training or whatever. I know all this. It's like it was last year. So how, you know, but our kids are more compliant. They're not necessarily going to, you know, kind of buck the system or question that authority figure. So that's really our job to advocate for all of those students getting their needs met. And sometimes it really helps me, you know, sometimes the way I run things in the classroom looks different than what I would expect as an adult. And, you know, I've even had coworkers say teachers can be the most challenging (laughs) students when those scripts are reversed. And so I really try to take what I know about education and plug it into my adult life and think, 
how much would I want and demand and evoke change if I was walking into meeting after meeting every single day? Like that's their Mm -hmm. school schedule. If I was walking in every day and many days, I knew 50 to 75% of the material that would be covered. I would be demanding change. And so when we think about that for our gifted students, this is just one way I think that we can start that process of building that bridge and buying back some of those, the time for those gifted learners. It almost makes you wonder like, why are we still doing the thing things we've always done and continuing to do them this way when we know that these schedules are not helping all of our kids? Right. Makes you wonder like, why aren't people, I don't know. I'm just sitting here like thinking about the stuff that we're given at our school and this is the way you need to teach, this is the schedule you need to follow. And I'm just like sitting here wondering, if this is the data and this is the research, then why aren't we changing things so that everybody's getting exactly what they need? Exactly. Well, and it's like, Mm. we are right. We're expected to do that every day that we supplement and we enrich and we extend and we remediate, but then they're all tested on the same material. And that's tricky too, as far as, you know, you know, showing growth. So for us, a lot of our gifted students in third or fourth grade, they may make a perfect score on their TCAP assessment. That makes it very challenging to show growth a year later, because if they miss even one problem on the next year's assessment, that doesn't show growth, even mm-hmm. though of course they were challenged, of course they grew, of course they were enriched. And so it does, it just really makes you double think or rethink, okay, what can, what small part can I play in this big, this big puzzle? And how can I advocate for these students? Yeah. So I think you've already talked about what to do for those kit. Our next question was about early finishers. I feel like a lot of teachers run into that. Was there anything else you want to add to that about things that just suggestions you would give for teachers who have kids that are finishing early? Besides Um, just saying, go read a book. Exactly. And especially in math class, ah, that's a hot take and I'm a people pleaser. So it's hard for me to publicly say a hot take. But as I mentioned, when I'm going into those classrooms, that's something I'm looking for to better address. So if I walk into the math class and a student is sitting there finished early and they're reading a book, I'm the biggest book lover of all. I don't think kids get enough time to read. So I'm definitely not, you know, thinking that there should be more reading at school, but it's where we're strategically placing that. And so for me, when I think about walking into a math class and a student and I go up and say, hey, why are you reading? And they say, oh, because I'm finished with everything. For me, what that does is just tells me to take a step back and see what kind of the reasoning and the rationale is. If it's two minutes, they didn't really have time to get started on anything else anyway. Absolutely. But if it's 25 minutes left of class, can we rethink and can we reshift a more meaningful way to spend that time? Because there is so much more to do with those kids. And that would sort of identify I just wasn't really sure what to do, but I can always have them read or "Mm, I didn't have the resources that I needed. And so I need some support there. Could we partner together? And that is something for me that if I see a student reading consistently in math class, I think there is so much untapped potential here. Can we partner together? And again, that's where I'm not, that's not faulting anyone. Not every building has the resources needed to really support this deep level of work. And when I say resources, like physical resources, like what to give the child instead, people like the position I serve in. So certainly no fault or blame placed anywhere, but just an idea of reshifting and rethinking that focus, because there's so much more depth that we could provide in math specifically with this advanced content. These students love puzzles. And so, and I feel like there's just not enough, you know, again, we go with the curriculum that is provided to us by district and state and things like that. It often doesn't include a lot of those great, like critical thinking, open-minded logic puzzles, things like that. So again, just putting some sort of systematic plan in place. Andy McNair is one of my favorite names in gifted education 
education. And she puts a real twist on the genius hour idea and she calls them passion projects. And so through that, she has like a systematic six-step process that students go through. And so that's like an ongoing project. So again, that's going to take a little bit of time up front figuring out, okay, let me get this kiddo started. What can we do? But then that's something they can continue to work on day after day. And it makes the meaningful instruction even more meaningful and individualized for that student without causing a lot of extra work or preparation or expenses on the part of the teacher. So things like the passion projects that a gifted student would just love. I've got that going with a fourth grader right now. It's really relevant. He has to interview an expert. So he is doing one on the Navy. So I have a cousin who served in the Navy for almost a decade. I snagged this kid when I had 10 minutes. We we got on Zoom with my cousin. And through that, we worked through ideas for a passion project. My cousin was sharing that the thing that was the hardest and saddest, like one of them when he was serving was just like when his mom would send him a pillowcase that was freshly laundered and it smelled like home. And that was like the most comforting thing to him because they used just really basic materials on the vessels and it was hard and starchy and not a soft pillowcase certainly didn't smell good and like home. And so what a cool project that would be to collect pillowcases, right? Just freshly laundered pillowcases that would just be such a tiny gesture and mean so much. So something like that, rather than just read the book you love, especially in that math class, right? Like we could save that more for that literacy instruction and and finding ways to carve that in, but also are there more meaningful because the, these kids a lot of times are going to read all the time anyway. So they're going to get that reading time. That's a priority for them. But when they are with us and they're under our care, could we elevate that instruction through a project, through a more systematic schedule, through some of the puzzles that are going to develop other types of thinking skills and really develop their stamina too? Because if the classwork's coming to them so easily that they are finished so early, are there other types of thinking skills that we could be developing along the way and pushing that perseverance and stamina a little bit? So eventually we're all going to hit something challenging. And if the work that we're giving them all the way through elementary school is come so easily to them, have they built up the skills when it all of a sudden doesn't? And maybe that doesn't come until college. Maybe that comes in the workplace. If we're not doing our job all along the way, but how impactful at the elementary level when they are still so flexible and so resilient to start presenting them with some of these open-ended tasks that are going to Require more of them and help them develop some of those really essential life skills. I think those open-ended projects are so beneficial, like you just said, in so many different areas of their life, but also on the teacher's like end, how it's more manageable and mm-hmm. it's going to get bang for buck, but also not drive you insane with like, when am I supposed to, I can just hear so right. many teachers. They're like, when am I supposed to do all this? When am I supposed yes. to plan all this? Yes. And they're just getting overwhelmed. And I think that is the best of both worlds. So really I just think that is very good for everybody. And that's always my heart and my passion after 10 years in the classroom to never forget what it feels like to be a general educator. I think they are absolutely superheroes and they are tasked with everything and it all comes back on them. They're the one all day, every day, every minute. And so whatever really systematic ways we can come up with to take so much off of them and also do what is best for these students and dispel that myth of, oh, they'll be fine is really just a win-win situation for everybody because these teachers want to, they want to, they will put in the work, mm-hmm. they will put in the time, they care so much. But sometimes it's just that question of this is so higher, high in the sky. How do I bring that down to a really tangible, manageable level? And that's so true. And I feel like I remember sitting and hearing, being told by people, we need to do what's best for kids. And that quite, that statement always irked so many people because I think it's like, of course we want to do what's best <laughs> right. for kids. Like yes. we wouldn't be here if we did yeah. not care about the kids. Absolutely. It's that we also care about our sanity and we also right. care about <laughs> our mental health. And I think that's what is and always- just aren't enough hours just, in today. 
Yeah. And I think people want to do both. And I think that's hard. So coming up with ways to do what's best for kids, but also that's manageable for teachers as well. That's like my number one passion is really finding ways to bring this into bite-sized manageable pieces that will make everyone's life better. It will improve the quality of life of teachers who are pouring out all that they have every minute, every day. And it will also help us creatively rethink some of these ideas for some of these students who need something a little bit different. So in thinking about these students, and we have so many of them, and there are a lot of educators out there that, um, you know, if you're not really if you're not really trained on how to identify those gifted students, it's kind of hard to, like, what are you looking for, you know? Um, I'd love for you to share a gifted student profile that was maybe unique um, with our listeners that maybe thinking about their own kiddos and people they are interacting with. Absolutely. And I've heard this in describing other types of neurodivergence, but I really think it's true with gifted kids as well. But it's, if you know one gifted kid, you know one gifted kid. So I think sometimes the opposite can be true where we are not identifying students because they don't fit this mold that we have in our head. So I do think there are certain qualities and characteristics, absolutely, that would kind of suggest, eh, we might need to look at this student. But what concerns me even more is the ones who don't fit that more quote unquote typical profile of what we think of. And y'all know by now, I love to be a myth buster, but it doesn't have to be the student with the best behavior. I think that is a huge, you know, misunderstanding with gifted students of, oh, they're not behaved very well in the classroom. So I would be shocked they needed something different. That actually indicates to me sometimes that they do. Sometimes those behaviors are stemming from boredom. And I always say, if they are not intellectually stimulated, they will find that stimulation somewhere else. So they will be in the back of the room playing with something that they, you know, aren't supposed to be touching or playing with right now, or they will be finding a way to challenge or push themselves by getting into your things and doing something else. And that's one that I really love to, to distinguish is making sure that it is not necessarily the best behaved, perfect A student. A huge thing that we have to be careful of in, in gifted education as well is underachievement. So sometimes the teacher will say their grades are not great. They're not my straight A student. Well, that's another, that can be that underachievement. And so have we identified them a big push in ed gifted education that I think has changed even since I've been in the field of education is early identification leads to early intervention. So, you know, when I first started teaching, it was almost unheard of for me to have a second grader who had already been identified as gifted because I'm sure back when it was typically we start looking at that around third grade. And I understand the psychology behind that is that that's typically when our IQ starts to stabilize for sure is by that eight years old or that third grade level. But there's this other idea too, with especially like the IQ assessments, that it really should be within just a very small amount of points, no matter if you test you now or later. And with the idea of neurodivergence, if your brain is wired differently, it didn't become wired differently when you were in the third grade. So there's lots of different schools of thought, and I would not pretend to be an expert on all of those, but those are just little kind of food for thought pieces. But some of the qualities that do put off like a ding in my head of, ooh, we might need to look at this, is things like I have had students who have a very deep sense of justice. And so that can look like what they eat. We have gifted students sometimes who will identify as a vegetarian, even when no one else in the family does, because they have such a deeply rooted sense of justice. So sometimes you know, when they're making different diet choices than their family at really young ages, having trouble sleeping at night because of something they saw on the news that's happening in a different country, this deep 
deeply rooted sense of justice. That's one. I had a kindergarten student one time and her mom sent a picture to the classroom teacher and was like, I am so sorry. You just asked her to write the alphabet and I don't know what came over her. She turned every letter of the alphabet into an animal. I am so, I know that's not what you asked her to do. And I said, ding. <laughs> there mm -hmm. she's get, Again, that wasn't stimulating or challenging enough for her. So she was going to make it something that was more challenging. And it was the cutest thing you've ever seen. Him. He's an alligator and she's done all this adorable work. And all so creative. Copy the letters, right? And her mom is, oh no, I'm so sorry. And we're like, no, 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 no. Okay. But that tells that tells me when she is five years old and she's already changing the assignments to customize them to something that really helps her bring out that creative outlet. That's something else. I have a first grade student who is an entrepreneur. He has started his own business. <laughs> And I love it so much. He sells dog treats once a month and he gets all the supplies, has a profit list of how much he needs to sell them for and all that. In the first grade, he has this business. There's one certain day of the month that he prepares all the dog treats and things like that in the first grade. And so things like that, where they're just really out of the box thinkers and they're sometimes that's really self-motivated. But again, that can be one of those myths is it's not always those students, but those are little things I look for when things come really easily to them. And you're like, how do you know that? Like, it seems like they just know it. And you're like, I know I didn't teach you that. And I know you haven't learned that in school. That's well above where you are, but it's this idea of just being able to pick things up and just knowing things. Something else that's really important too, again, kind of one of those myths is the idea of asynchronous development. And so that means I heard it recently, um, Dr. Matt, I think he has already been podcasting with y'all. He is such yeah. a great name and gifted ed, but yeah. I heard him recently quoting someone else. And he was saying, they talk about the idea of parenting or teaching five kids in one when you have a gifted child in your care. And so their intellectual age may be very far beyond their like physical body age of a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or whatever. Sometimes their behavioral age can even be a little bit below. And so that's another of those myths of they're still like, tantruming in the second grade. And that behavior would not make me think that they need something different. In fact, they're a bit immature behaviorally. Ding, ding. That can be another, another piece of that puzzle, but that it's a very asynchronous, uneven development. They can be advanced in certain areas, right where they're supposed to be in others and below in others. Again, like we talked about that myth of average. Those are just a few of the things I look for that really out of the box thinking, the creativity, deep sense of justice and injustice. Um, uneven levels of development, advanced in some, right on track, maybe even below in others. Those are just a few of the things I look for. But I, I also, of course, really heavily rely on that data. So we look to serve a lot of times the top two to 5% of students. So that's always a good indicator for me at the start is how are they performing in comparison to their peers when they're in that top two to 5% back to college statistics, but they're two standard deviations away from the mean. And so a lot of times in special education services, that's where we're wanting that most intense level of support if they truly are two standard deviations away from the mean and we as classroom teachers are tasked with grade level standards those needs are going to be so significantly different that they're going to need something else to be appropriately challenged in the classroom and I think that's so important why like gen ed teachers need to be trained and have more training in gifted ed because what if a kid, their data is not showing mm -hmm. that they are at that level. However, maybe they're bored and so they're not performing on their assessments mm -hmm. or anything like that. I just think all of that is so important. And that's just, that's scary to think that a kid would not be identified because they're not showing on data, but their teacher doesn't know what to look for. So they don't see it. And then that kid it just gets worse and worse and worse. And those behaviors come out. I just think it's so important. And that's something that we're going to be talking about on the podcast is just 
training at the collegiate level and what kind of exposure teachers are getting just in more training and what kind of training opportunities are they getting and all of that. And that's our hope with this podcast is that more people will just learn what it is to be gifted and how like what you think it is may not be exactly what it is. I think the last idea, just a closing thought related to what you just shared is the idea that there are gifted kids in every building. There are a lot of schools that will say, oh, we don't have any gifted kids. So that podcast, that's not for me. We don't have gifted kids. Gifted kids are everywhere. And one way that can be addressed and supported is through using a different way of identifying students. And that's called using local norms. And so if a school was to adopt the practice of using local norms, then you would norm that based on your population of students. So you would still be working with that top two to 5% of the population. And those could be identified and served through the process of local norms. There's also a lot of schools of thought and gifted education about talent development. And so if it was a school where we, you know, maybe the population was performing at a different level and maybe we, you know, had believed, oh, our school doesn't have gifted kids. Well, if we were able to serve that top two to 5% through a talent development model, some of those gifts could really be brought through in that aspect. So that's just food for thought, especially in under-identified, underserved populations. That would be a great way to really meet those needs and make sure that the top two to 5% of any given population are getting something different, are being given access to that type of curriculum. And then also the idea of growing and developing that talent through proper instruction. So Stephanie, how can our listeners get in contact with you? I would love for them to do that. I cherish every single new face. Instagram is the best place. So that's at Little Miss Gifted. I would just love to see you there. That's where I start and share so many things from. I have a YouTube channel. I've learned quickly from starting the Instagram. Sometimes I need to be able to see you and touch and talk and show you. And so I have started a YouTube channel and a TikTok. And both of those are at Little Miss Gifted Teacher. But again, Instagram will link you to all of the others. And the Instagram is at Little Miss Gifted. So I just started that in December. Decided to move from just my my school each and every day to sharing in a broader capacity with the hopes of reaching more teachers and impacting more students. So I would love to see you there. I share content daily. And that is my philosophy is these little bite-sized pieces, like just take this one little piece and save this one for later. And so I would just love to see you there. And I think it's so great that you have practical ideas. And I feel like sometimes with professional development, we hear all these wonderful things, but it's like, I leave and then I'm like, but what do I do now? That was great. I have also personally been victimized by professional development. Yep. I think we would all say (laughs) that. And so that is the whole idea is everything I share. I want you to be able to implement tomorrow. Hey, take this little piece and try this and you can do this tomorrow. You get there five minutes early and make these copies and you're ready to roll. So that is always my hope and my heart behind that. Again, 10 years in the classroom, I know the pressure and the stress and the time constraints and the needs placed on teachers. And it is just, I think it's the most important job ever. And and so I'm just so grateful for our teachers and want to help support that however I can. So those little bite-sized, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought about that. That's really the heart behind what I share each day. So helpful. All right. So the last thing we want to talk about is this, and I love asking this question because I feel like so many people have so many different answers and perspectives, but is the divide that the term giftedness causes. Sometimes this term can lead to misconceptions. It can prevent students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes. So do you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, what would you rename it? 
I can see why some might feel that way. I personally, it's not so much the word. It's really the idea that it falls under this idea of neurodivergence. And so I think that's where if we can come at it, take one step back from the word gifted and not get us hung up on the word gifted, but back up one step further and realize that fits under this umbrella of neurodivergence, meaning that it comes with its own gifts and also with its own challenges. And again, if you've met one gifted kid, you met one gifted kid. And so intellectually, they may have some things that do just come to them naturally and easily, and they don't always have to work for it to the same degree. However, with that neurodivergence may come additional challenges. And I'll, my brother, I'll get mad. I'll use him as my example, but he is the most successful attorney and he's amazing, all of these things, but then sometimes forgets that the rental car place is closed on Sunday. So when he visits every <laughs> single time, he's like, yeah, we're going to drop the rental car off on Sunday. And I'm like, every time you come here, remember it's closed on Sunday. So it's like, he's got these huge, big ideas and he can just go and remember things and do deep dives, but he forgets the rental car place is always going to be closed on Sunday in our small hometown. And so they all come with challenges. So that's not, it's not, a, I don't see it as elitist. I don't see it as a superiority. I see it as, as if we really look at it with that lens of academic humility, we all have strengths. We all bring something different and unique and special to the table that no one else but us can provide. But we all have areas where we're still learning and growing and pushing and challenging ourselves, and where we can continue to improve. So I really think more from the term of neurodivergence, I think understanding how intellectually giftedness fits into this bigger umbrella of being differently wired is where I focus more of my time and energy than the idea of, I don't know who has that power to, to come up with the names or to change the names, but that would be where I would want to consider the dispelling is that their brains are differently wired. And I genuinely do see in all of the research that I've done in my expertise that these students need something different, as does every single student in our class. But under this identification, we do have some research and some best practices and some curriculum that would support the ways that their brains are wired. So true. So true. So the understanding of what the term means, not necessarily the actual word itself. I love that. This has been beautiful. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Stephanie. I have written so many things down. Like, I just think you are such a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're just, this has been absolutely wonderful just listening to you. And like we said in the beginning, you're obviously so passionate about what you're doing. And I just wish you all of the success and everything you're continuing to do. And just thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Of course. I'm just, again, thankful for a neighboring state and all the work that you're doing in gifted education and the way that you're supporting parents and teachers and gifted children and just other stakeholders with a vested interest in this really important area. So thank you so much for having me and allowing me into your community. And I truly just love this. I love connecting. I love sharing. I love hearing ideas and what everyone else in education is doing. So please connect with me online at Little Miss Gifted and we can continue the conversation there.